Welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Victor Cho. Victor recently served as the CEO of Evite, where he led the company back from the brink of extinction onto a path of growth. Prior to that, he was a CEO at Kodak Gallery, vice president at Intuit, and has also spent seven years at Microsoft, where he launched some of the company's earliest internet commerce initiatives. In this episode, we talked about his experience as CEO at Evite, some of the things he did to change the course and trajectory of the company. We also discuss his free career course that he offers on his website, which is a reflection of the years of experience he has, as well as the wisdom he's gained along the way. And we discuss some of the things he's currently passionate about. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please feel free to leave five stars on iTunes, as well as subscribe on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. Um, I do want to get this started with my first question, which is revolving your experience as the CEO of Evite. Um, you know, you've stated in the past that you saved the company from the air quotes MySpace slide and successfully brought the business from systemic degradation to user stabilization and then eventually revenue growth. Um, talk about that journey. What were some of the existing set of values at the company when you joined and what were some of the first things that you changed? Yeah, that's that's a it's a it's a great and, and ongoing story. It's not over. So I was tapped in 2014 to take over as the CEO. I'm not a founder. The business has actually been around for 25 plus years now, or close to 25 years. Uh, and yeah, there's this term I use called the MySpace slide, which which is at a high level when a user experience has been neglected around a social system. And it starts to slide. So Friendster, which is one of the early social networks, went 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 down and imploded. Of course, my MySpace imploded. And the reason these businesses implode is the social dynamic that caused them to grow, which is a viral dynamic, is is wonderful when it's on the upswing, and but when it goes the other way, it's actually almost impossible to reverse. And Evite is a social product or social uh, tool by its core. At its core, right? I. For those anyone not familiar with it, it's a it's a tool to help you organize a party. So you right, you know, I invite twenty or thirty people. They get exposed to the product when they throw their party. They use the product, so it's got this great viral loop. And what? Yeah, when I had joined in twenty fourteen, the business had had already peaked. It had peaked in around two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine timeframe, and had started a decline. And that was one of my first jobs as CEO was to figure out. Actually, even before I took the CEO role, one of my jobs was to figure out is this is this a systemic decline that can be fixed or not? And going back to your question, the you know, I wish it was some magic formula that's that I, I came in there and was like, yeah, wave the magic wand. And it's it's nothing like that. It was as simple as the customer experience had been horrendously neglected for you know probably five years, uh, including you know very basic things like when I you know this was twenty fourteen, right? So of course. Phones were ubiquitous, but the mobile flows didn't work. The apps didn't work. And in a bizarre backwards logic, I looked at that uh, and I realized, wow, this this business should be failing faster than it was. So literally the first two years of fixing that business were nothing nothing more sophisticated than listening to the customers. I'm a huge proponent of Net Promoter, the, the customer experience score, which we could talk about. Uh, and I typically run businesses that get net promoters up in the 80 range. And to do that, you, you literally, it's, it's a hardcore focus on what are the issues and you go fix them. We just, we literally ran that engine. And as a result of that, after about two years, we stabilized the business and flected it and brought it back to growth. How do you determine what the priority should be there? 
Yeah, at a very high level, for those maybe not familiar, Net Promoter is a very simple score. It's a, it's a recommendation. I'm sure you see it on a gazillion websites. Um, you get this question, hey, would you recommend this to a friend, this service or this product that you're using? And if if you have a high score, you explain, well, why did you give it a 9 or a 10? Or if you have a low score, it's like, yeah, why was it broken? So the the algorithm for optimizing is is basically as simple as you look at the people that rate you very low. In the case of Net Promoter, it's one through six. These are called detractors. And you read their raw feedback and you find the biggest buckets. It's like, wow, there's a huge segment of people that are complaining about the apps not working. I'm like, okay, we need to go fix that. Or here's a huge segment that can't log into their account or whatever the issue is. You literally just continue to run that engine. And it is kind of, it's funny, it's a leap of faith because I remember when I first brought that to the team, they had one, they hadn't run the engine. And they were very, uh, very focused on the granular optimization and measurement, right? And so I, I remember some conversations of, well, what's, let's A-B test this. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't A-B test this stuff, right? You just fix it. You fix it. And the cumulative impact of fixing all of those things will lift the business. And they're like, well, how do you test it? I was like, no, you don't test it. It's just build a great product. And that that took them a while, you know, for the, you know, for the first whatever year where we were slogging away and the thing wasn't moving. I think there was still some skepticism, but then the, when it all started to come back, they realized, oh yes, this does work. It just it just takes commitment and focus and letting go of measurement, which is a weird one. Would you say it takes sort of creativity and I guess rethinking existing processes as well, or is it simply a matter of allocating your resources and capital with the hopes that it eventually compounds into a better user experience? Yeah, it's a no, I, I would say to really run a customer-centric business, you're changing everything. You're changing the, the mindset of why you exist as a company at the highest level, right? To serve the customer. You're changing all you know, your business processes and workflows move into a customer-centric world where that feedback in some ways is the primary engine driving. You, you know, even your product and feature development often comes from your customers. I, I, I used to give the speech uh back in the you know 2000 period of look in the world of the internet you have to let go of this sense of control over your product which is a weird thing it's like your customers are going to tell you what to go build and then you go build that because that's that's what they want that's what they're craving um and that's a weird thing for you a lot of people are like well now i've got this vision in my head it's like oh that's great you could put it out there but you know if that's not what they want you, know, you got to go chase the signal of what they want and what creates delight and what you know what really creates wow in the customer mind. Absolutely. I think that's very, very true. Um, I heard a quote once that said, the market always determines your true value or your true worth. Um, yeah. And that could be, you know, vastly different from your own self-image and idea of who you are and how great your product is. Um, so I think that's very, very true. Yeah, I love that in line. Terms that's of, a, great, it's a great line. In terms of challenges, um, outside of just reshaping and restructuring the entire structure of the business, for lack of a better term, what were some of the challenges that you faced uh, within that journey? I think pay patience is one, right? I think in general, you know, we, we had a great, uh, at the time we were owned by a company called Liberty Media, Liberty Interactive, uh, and they were one of the best um, parent owners, for lack of a better term, in that you know I sat down with them, I, you know, I think this was three or four months into the job, and presented a three-year roadmap or three-year plan of, okay, you, know, you don't expect me to overnight fix, you know, four or five years, six years of degradation. Like this, I think I said, it was going to take me a year and a half is what I said to put all the work in and, hi and actually you know, rehire the teams. We both, you know, we had to downsize the company, right? 
in the beginning and then we had to hire new people. So there's all this change. And I kind of laid out a multi-year plan. I said, after we stabilize, then we'll go figure out you know, the growth and then we'll worry about revenue. It was kind of a, uh, it was a very long-term play. And you know, under other owners, you know, yeah, I might not have been given the runway to do that, but the, you know, those guys were awesome. And they said, nope, that that's logically all sound. And yeah, here's here's the short-term capital to go do it. And then every year when we hit our goals, uh, I think that built more credibility. But that's that's one. Uh, I think that's always one challenge is just the, the elongated timeline that some of this stuff takes. So thinking from a sort of broader perspective and not yeah. kind of in the micro sense of, you know, immediate moves for immediate returns for immediate yeah. stakeholder satisfaction perhaps that that's exactly right it's that idea of balancing stakeholders because i could you know the monetization of the business at that time was still advertising which we finally got out of uh, which was always the long-term plan for the business right to get out of the advertising business and we could have done you know the first thing i could have done was jacked up a bunch of advertising revenue uh, and increased monetization and therefore avoided some downsizing and maybe made the business a little healthier financially but that would have been at the expense of the user experience. And my message is, look, you can, you know, you can attach your know, revenue to a sinking rock and that's, you're still going to have a sinking rock. So you got to fix, you got to get the thing to float first and then you can worry about having a big money. What were some of the, I guess, channels of uh, monetization at that time? Oh, oh, back, back then we were predominantly advertising based as a business. So I'd say, you know, 90 and 90, 95% advertising, something in that range. Uh, and now advertising is a teeny tiny fraction of the business. We effectively have shed all the advertising on the site. And what would you say are the current channels then? Uh, it's a combination. Uh, I'd say at the highest level, it's it's digital uh, kind of premium services. So people will pay to um, have a higher end version of an invitation. That's the biggest job by far. Got it. It's not quite um, SaaS because they tend to be more one-off purchases, but yeah, I'll call it digital, digital commerce. Digital commerce. So premium tiers and yeah. just additional features. Bingo, bingo. The next thing I wanted to move towards is kind of the, the career course that you offer on your website. You know, one, very much appreciate the fact that you put that out there for free. And I encourage everybody, you know, young entrepreneurs, business owners, people early in their careers to go check it out. I think it's extremely valuable information. And it's also a reflection of the years of experience you have as a leader and all the things that you've learned. So super valuable and very much appreciate that that initiative. For the sake of this conversation, I wanted to just touch on maybe one or two lessons from the career course module that you have, primarily lesson one and lesson 10. So lesson one being attacking your job from the CEO's vantage point or your boss's vantage point. If you don't mind providing a high-level overview of how to go about, air quotes, thinking like your boss slash CEO and why it's important to do so. Yeah, no, that uh, so that's at, at a super high level. Uh, basically, what I've done is I've codified the you know, 30 years of the best coaching and learning I ever got, both formally from companies I've been at, also just my own learning, uh, kind of my own self-reflection. So that's, yeah, that's all out there for the world for free. Yeah, this this first course lesson, the concept is simple, which is, you know, I, I always everybody, I think, in general wants to progress in their career, uh, but they don't take this time to lay the path in front of them. And so they tend to, to, stand very, to stay very narrowly focused on kind of the work at hand. And they think, if I just do a great job at that, the world's going to reward me. 
And that's actually, you may be lucky, <laughs> that may be the case, uh, but you're really going to be way better served if you start building the skills at the next level and thinking about your role at the next level. And so I have this idea of, right, yep. and I, for some reason, I was just always naturally wired this way, but I always pushed myself into the role of the CEO and said, hey, how would I approach my job if I had that vantage point? Because actually, you know, it's funny when you when you're given a, a project at one vantage point, if you start elevating your thinking to the higher high levels, you'll actually approach it very differently. And in fact, you may even do things like say, this is a dumb project uh, because you know maybe the CEO is missing some context. Um, and that's always served me incredibly well uh, because at the end of the day, people see that you're thinking more strategically, you're thinking broader. And then as a result, you know, a natural output of that is they're going to give you more responsibility because they can. That's one of the big filters as I watch executives rise through the ranks. Right? It's 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 one of my filters. It's like, hey, are are you thinking at the next level? Are you demonstrating that you actually have that strategic ability to think broader than your function? So, can you define that further? What do you mean by thinking at the next level? Does that also, I guess, require a higher level understanding of the business? You know, beyond just your immediate impact, does that require maybe cross-functional mentorship, communication, just kind of understanding like how the entire organization is ran and like what the strategy and the vision is? How do you like at an entry level position, I guess, go about developing or contributing towards the development of that broader uh, way yeah. of thinking? Yeah, sh short answer is yes, yes, yes. All those things that you mentioned are exactly right. So instead of viewing your world as, oh, I'm, I'm just a, a person in this role, right? And I'm giving tasks, I'm going to do them. It's like, yes, that's that's the job that you're hired for. But no, ex exactly right. Yeah, you got to go understand the organization in which you operate. Like, what is what is the company, right? How does it operate? What are its highest level priorities? What are all the teams that you're interacting with that are going to be required to get this thing done? Like, what are they working on? What are their priorities? What are their constraints? Right. It's really elevating yourself to, and again, you would have that vantage point the higher you go in the organization. You usually don't have that vantage point as a frontline employee because nobody bothers to tell you or give you that context. They're like, oh, go do this job. Uh, it requires you to literally carve out, I recommend 10% of your time, right? 10% of your time to go build up those skills and spend the time to get that context because whatever time you spend there, I guarantee is going to come back in spades from an efficiency and effectiveness perspective. So yes, yeah, all of those things that you mentioned are, are exactly are spot on. Do you have any, I guess, personal experiences or uh, uh, an experience that comes to mind where you can, I guess, retroactively see yourself doing this very thing or yeah, laying no, the that... foundation of this understanding? Yeah, no, the example, uh, actually, I have this example in the course itself. One of the very first meetings I had with one of the only two meetings I had with uh, Bill Gates in the room when I was at Microsoft was presenting a project around, this is when online first came on, first internet sites were spawning, right? And I was running the project to actually sell software direct to the consumer over the online channels, which is a huge uh, conflict with the channels that existed at the time, because at that point in time, all software sold via these huge retailers. Uh, and I very distinctly remember right, you know, kind of putting the recommendation together and, and presenting to you know, all the senior executives at the company, uh, including Bill, and saying, hey, yeah, no, of course, we can, we can sell this stuff. This could be a big business. And, yeah, I think it was oh, you know, over $100 million that I thought we could generate in fairly short order. And my recommendation was not, yeah, let's go do it. 
I basically said, you know, I don't think this is the right time to do this because this is going to create massive channel conflict on billions of dollars of revenue, right? It's still pretty small. We can always pull this trigger later. I was like, I think the right thing, you know, if I were the CEO, the right thing I would do is I'd pause it for now and not create that conflict for the business. Now that could have like killed my job, right? I was working on that project for, you know, a year and a half. So it's a weird one, right? right? It's weird. Mm -hmm. I could have as easily said, no, give me a bunch of money. Let's go build up this big website. But it was a good example of thinking at the more strategic level. Uh, and I remember, yeah, yeah, uh, it was a pretty fast response. Bill says, he's such a smart guy. He, he was like, yep, that sounds right. <laughs> let's go do, let's do that. Uh, and then I went off to, you know, you know, the next project, the next thing. So you were also like not particularly attached to that one thing or that one way of thinking. You, you know, with the broader sense came the ability to detach and yes. immediately dive into something else that would have maybe contributed at a higher level or was more appropriate within, you know, I guess the time frame of the business. That's right. I now I've been lucky and that I've always worked in in can I quote the corporate environments that I've worked in have all been fairly non-political, I would argue, and fairly appreciate and appreciative of that. It's possible like you might be working in a in a really bad culture that doesn't reward that. But I, I think that's the vast minority like a tiny fraction of the minority of companies, right? I think in general, most most companies are trying to do the, the right thing. And when they see someone who's thinking strategically at the higher level, they'll reward that. Absolutely. Um, the next lesson, which is lesson 10, is building your extended network. Again, if you don't mind doing a high level overview, and then we could dive into maybe a few questions regarding that. Yeah, no, this, uh, this is one of the, I'd say one of the lessons I learned too, not too late, but much later on. Um, I didn't realize the power of building your your professional network and cultivating it, right? And and maybe maybe more importantly, moving it out of a transactional world. So when I was when I was super young, I was super transactional in how I thought about everything. And so yeah, I would keep you know I would I would think about oh who's that person like can they help me or you know are they going to somehow help me in the future. And I would only interact with folks right around some kind of transaction. And as a result of that, yeah, you know, I'd say for the first. 15 or maybe even 20 years of, of my life. Like I didn't cultivate these deep connections, right? What happens when you treat everyone in a transactional nature is that <laughs> they don't, you know, you don't build deep connections. Uh, and, you know, I came to the conclusion later in life that, you know what, there's, there is just value in given how much time you spend in work, there's value in just building deeper personal connections outside of any, desire to get anything from anyone right it's it's just it's rewarding on an emotional level and then you'll be incredibly surprised at how your extended network will help you at some future point in time right um when you need it what would you say are some elements uh that contribute contribute towards building a deeper connection that's not transactional you know the best one and i got this from uh, uh the gentleman who founded the internet marketing association a gentleman named Sinan, a good friend and I, I've, and it's made literally it's made me a happier person in life. Um, when I when I first actually took over Evite back in 2014, I remember I, I had lunch with him because a friend had introduced us. They're like, oh, if you're going to be working down in LA, you need to meet this guy Sinan. I met with him. I assumed he was going to pitch me something. I was like, he's got a, uh, you know, I didn't know what, what and, and literally it was none of that. We just we got to know each other, and he offered help. He's like, hey. Let me know what you need help on. Like I, I've got this huge network of folks, uh, and that was so refreshing. 
right? And and I ended up getting right a lot of help, and he helped me get connected. He he never asked for a single thing in return, right? He just and then li literally, after, I don't know, maybe a year later, I, I found out. He's like, oh, my God, he's got a whole PR firm. He never even pitched to me. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got this PR firm. Like, if you guys need PR help, I'm happy to do it. All right. And we actually ended up working together from that perspective. But no, but the core thought is like, just go go put goodness out in the world. Like, go help people, especially as you get as you rise up in your career. Um, it makes you feel good. Um, it helps them. And it, it just builds this great bond. So that's... I, I do that a lot now. I just, I, with no hope of any, anything coming back, I just try to help more people. So the next thing I wanted to focus on, which is your current initiative, uh, you talk a lot about the fourth stakeholder framework. Yes. That's something you're deeply passionate about yeah. and currently working on. Um, if you want to, again, provide an overview of what that is, why it's important, and maybe we can dive into some of the specific elements um, and some of the challenges surrounding the execution. Yeah, no, perfect. So I've always had a passion for society at a high level, an appreciation for society. And maybe my starting comment would be, and I don't know if I got this from my mother or from just good upbringing, but I've never had the delusion that whatever level of success I achieve in the world, never had the delusion that that's all 100% me. It's just so clear to me, and maybe it's because I'm a systems thinker. I'm just like, I, no, no. There's a, there's a piece of it which is yes, your your contribution and your skill, but you are literally riding on layers and layers and layers of what society has provided for you to help you succeed. And so my my starting premise is that if you are ever lucky enough, and I do say lucky, lucky enough to succeed to the point where you have some kind of scale lever of control in the society. That could be you're running a business, could be you have a great podcast with a lot of listeners, right? It could be you're a media star, whatever it is, you actually have an obligation to tune that scale back to societal's benefit in some way. Because the only reason you got that success was because society let you have it. That's a very different mindset from a lot of executives where they're like, oh no, I'm a king of the mountain and I nobody else could have done this. I'm like, no, that's not true. <laughs> it's like it's not true. Um, so given that lens, I, you know, I, I have this framework. It's a series of articles I published out uh, at thefourthstakeholder.com around this idea of, well, okay, how do you do that? How do you, if you're a bit specifically for business, right? If you're a business executive and you're running a business, how do you give back to society? Because the answer is not simple. Uh, and in fact, today, if you're a CEO, you're bombarded with 100, 200 more, right? There's every, every little micro pocket of society has maybe something that's related to your business. So it's very hard to prioritize and figure out what to go do. And that, that was a big gap that I saw. Uh, and because I'm an operator and I'm very rigorous around process, my thought was, no, this is, this can be, this can be put into a process just like anything else. And it should be prior, the work should be prioritized. It should be prioritized for impact, not based on who's screaming loudest. And so there's a, a whole framework around, okay, how do you amplify your societal impact in terms of treating society as a stakeholder? And that comes down to you know doing more good in the world, doing less harm in the world, uh, focusing on the biggest things, and kind of prong number four, making sure that that whole engine has societal input as it, it's not just you in a black box. And that's the essence of the papers. Every company should have... Uh, this matrix of social impact, right? And it and what you would put on this matrix is, you know, what what's the greatest societal benefit I can bring, right? And am I focused on those things? And 
more importantly, what are the biggest societal harms that I'm creating, either myself or in conjunction with other folks? And am I addressing those? So specifically for Apple, no, I'll say Apple's on the, on the spectrum of companies. I actually think they're very good, right? They do spend a lot of energy around you know, trying to protect privacy, right? In a proactive way, putting in parental controls on devices, right? As, as best as they can. So like, yes, you know, environment, right? They're, they're taking great positive steps. Let's just take that harm vector for them. Uh, if I if I look at their business model in totality and say, okay, what's the biggest societal harm that is coming out of the Apple ecosystem? Uh, that's probably either you know, smoke or fire right now. And I'd say there's clearly a signal around device addiction, right? Now, this is a great one because it's not just them, right? Apple, yes, they sell half the phones on the planet, but just half, right? So Apple can't solve this by themselves, right? We actually have a, a fundamental industry problem around putting a supercomputer in your pocket and all of the addiction that comes from it. And some of that addiction comes from downstream services, right, that are that are enabled. But it's they are smack in the middle. If you look, you know, if you look at the depression curves, usage curves, right? It's clear we have a problem. It's probably the number one thing. If you asked a, a parent today, like, what are you most concerned with? It's like, oh, my kid's addicted to my phone, right? Even they're addicted to their phone. So we, I'd say they are far off the mark in terms of figuring out how do you avoid that because it's kind, it's kind of counter to their business model, right? Like reducing addiction to phone use is not conducive to app store revenue. But my whole premise is. From a societal perspective, they need to figure out how to balance that into their equation. And, and to their credit, they, they have, right? Things like screen time protections, where they can just lock it. It's like, yes, excellent. That's a great first step, but they, they can definitely do more. And from my perspective, they need to get together with Google, right? Since between the two of them, they control effectively the headset market. And in, col in collaboration, they need to come up with a way and a rationale and the data and the analysis to go figure out what is this problem? Like, what's the real data? And like, how do we go about solving it together? Because if they don't solve it, then at some point, government regulation comes in to try to solve it. But regulation is a horrible, slow, and inefficient way. It's like, it's never going to solve it better than the companies can do themselves. I definitely agree with that last part um, and everything else you said, but specific that, specifically that last part, because the companies that are, I mean, these are the brightest minds that are working on creating systems that they can effectively add these layers of you know, societal consideration within, as opposed to governments that have to first understand what's happening and then interject. Yes. Um, I want to use these last few minutes to touch on AI and the impact of AI that you see um, from your perspective. You mentioned you're on the board of a, a an AI startup. Um, what are some of the developments that are, that you are seeing from your perspective that are concerning um, and or beneficial? Yeah, so the, I've only had Three career, what I call career epiphanies <laughs> in my life. First one, when I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to be the CEO of a business, except I didn't know it was called CEO. I, I was like, oh, I want to be the general of a software company just because I didn't have any mentors. But that was kind of epiphany number one. Epiphany two came in 95 at Microsoft when the internet showed up. Right? At that point, I'd worked in software for quite a bit. I was a developer, little you know, teenage developer geek. But it was so clear to me. I was like, oh, wow, we, we're going to put all software on a ubiquitously connected network bi-directional network like that changes everything about software and so it basically made the internet um, my focus and you know, haven't had that moment until you know eight eight months ago or so right with this with the wave of ai and the progress and the the way i would describe it without going into all of the 
you know crazy algorithms or or frameworks is is simply this we have we have finely created software systems with emergent capabilities meaning their capabilities are transcending um what we put into them in ways we don't quite understand and what that says to me just at a very high level is we've made the logical leap from a proof perspective that the way towards you know human level or even beyond human level intelligence is digital neural networks uh that wasn't a given in my mind you know you know eight or nine months ago like we knew neural networks could solve very point problems we knew good nets could solve like very focused things but we we hadn't seen emergent behavior before but to me now that you know the pandora's box is open it's like okay this is the path which basically means the world from my perspective is going to go through probably the biggest change it's ever gone through over the next you know, 50, you, 50 years would you mind defining emergent uh behavior yeah uh, emergent behavior is it can do things it was never designed to do so you know when AlphaGo or deep blue right you know the two software you know, pro, you know ml's algorithms or ai's whatever you want to call them you know beat you know the world's best go master the world's best chess master respectively that wasn't a surprise right it's like that's what the thing was designed for right and so you know yeah it, it didn't do something completely off out of, out of the grid it wasn't like alpha go something was like oh yeah no i'll play chess now and beat you in chess <laughs> it's like no 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 we knew what it was designed for it delivered what it was designed to do in the vector that we designed it for uh these systems now have emergent capabilities meaning they can pass tests they were never designed to to specifically pass Right. Or uh, there's a great one. There's a psychological thing called theory of mind. It's a very simple psychological test that we've used for a long time in, in the psych field, which gauges whether you as an individual understand this concept of mind. And it's, it's, a, it's a simple test. Like imagine a kid watching a scene through a, a, you know, a two-way uh, or a one-way mirror. And like a person moves a ball from one box to another box while another person is not looking. Right. So imagine like two people are in a room, one person puts the ball in box A, that person leaves, the other person moves the ball to box B, then the other person comes back. Right. And the person, you know, for us, that's really easy. And if you ask them, okay, that person that left the room, like where are they going to look for the ball? Of course, they're going to look for it where they put it, right? Because there's no reason to think that it moved. But of course, we know it's in the other one. And young kids don't get that right. They're like, oh, they'll look for it in B. And you, and you try to explain, well, because they don't have this idea, right? Of the, that person had a different experience. It's like in their mind in a different way. Um, AIs were never trained on theories of mind, but they can now answer those questions at the level of, uh, I think, you know, twelve or thirteen year old. So that's a great example of emergent behavior, where just the sophistication of the network is creating outputs that were not there before, and and we're just at, we're at day one of like day ten thousand of this capability. So it it will fundamentally change the world i think in almost every way over the next 50 years where do you see it going um from a societal impact standpoint you know what kind of jobs and roles and functions do you see these algorithms replacing yeah this is the you know it's, it's funny when i put together the fourth stakeholder framework there were two industries that i had in mind um, but this was actually, you know, in some ways before all the generative AI stuff came. And so it was a good stress test. But the the, the industries were social networking um, and AI. So now I've, I've literally, I've taken what's happening <laughs> in the space and run it through my framework to say like, well, yeah, what are the biggest societal impacts? And at least my my perspective right now is there are these 
there's a lot of overhype and over concern around the idea of like some renegade generalized intelligence being formed that takes the world down. I'm like, that's not the thing I think we should be worrying about right now. We can control against that with some very simple things, um, which I think most, which we're, which we're doing like, Oh, let's be able to unplug it. Let's not give it, you know, bi-directional unfettered read, write access to the entire internet and like financial systems. Like there's simple things we can do. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I call it the you know, crazy Einstein. Like if you had psychopathic Einstein, he could do a lot of damage, but if you put him in a in a prison cell, he can't do a whole lot of damage. So we can keep these things relatively contained if we're smart. No, I, I'm much more worried about the second order effects of these things. Uh, and on the negative side, there are clear. There's two clear ones I think that I'm, I think are the most important to solve or figure out how to solve in the short term. One is the concept of what is truth is now going to get completely blown apart, right? You know, between the ability to create content, create visual content. What is true has, is, is and, and propaganda is going to be under this massive onslaught. So that's kind of number one. Number two is clearly job loss because we are very rapidly going to get to the point where large chunks of the population where the output of what they do today can be done better by these systems. Um, oh, and I guess there's a third one, which is kind of the criminalization and weaponization of this by bad act, privacy, you know, stealing your money and impersonating your kids like all of this is coming from your perspective do you think it's too late for people to really start learning how to code how to start working with um neural networks and stuff like that or do you think it's too late uh i think i have a slightly different answer which is i don't know that you have to go all the way to the technical level of working with these things right the reality is we're gonna there's gonna be a small subset of companies that are truly pushing the envelope on how these systems and tools get created i think what's going to be and if you know if you're in that space then yeah you know, absolutely it's an ex incredibly exciting space to go be um but no for the vast world i think of it differently which is you need to rethink your company your job your skills in a world where you have every expert on the planet available to you 24 7 at your fingertips and that if, with that simple that simple twist, like the world changes, right? Everything changes. And so people that are the best orchestrators, people are going to go from being solo experts, and that's their value, to a combination of you're an amazing expert in something, but you can also blend that as an amazing orchestrator of all of the other experts on the planet, which are now manifest through AI, which is crazy, which is absolutely wow. crazy. But that's a completely different yeah, you're, you're moving from player to player conductor at a high level. And everyone, not everybody, right? But a lot of jobs are going to move into that. Into that, you know, Every student has to figure out how to do that, right? It, it's, it's. I do say, I don't think it's hyperbole. It's going to be the biggest change to how humans function ever in my and mind. And possibly contribute to just higher quality output. Um, yeah. So like all the all the cool things that we have right now, you know, whether it's technology or infrastructure architecture any of that stuff like i think the amount of effort and the amount of collaboration and everything that it took to i guess get the world that we currently exist in we may be able to see a 2.0 version occur in a quarter of the time or you know a fraction of the time that it took yeah. for all of this to occur and that's right i, I think the question would be how can non-technical younger people this you know the latest generation whatever you want to call it how can they 
contribute and be a part of this as opposed to being consumers because majority of us like you 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 are certainly somebody that's you know shaped these systems and and contributed to how the world functions and from a technological perspective but people that are just starting out how can they contribute within this next sort of phase of that i think i i think it might be the same answer to some degree which is like we don't we don't know and it's, it's going to evolve so fast right we like literally i think the next 20 to 30 years like everything things are going to change at such a rapid pace maybe faster than they've ever changed because unlike any other technological invention that's come through like this is yes there's server costs right it's expensive and a lot of water blah 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 but for the average person the incremental cost of now having all of the experts on the planet ever at your fingertips is basically zero which is different from the industrial revolution where it's like oh yeah now we got the steam engine for your farm it's like do you want to deploy great now we gotta re you know let's rebuild all your processes and let's put a steam engine in that, that just takes time so the cycle time to unpack and untap the value that we're talking about can be near instantaneous or as, as instantaneous as software can be which is huge and so as a result of that all these processes are going to be redefined. So no, I, I think my answer is just to jump into the fray and be at the be at the forefront of how everything is evolving and just don't let it it's still gonna happen to a lot of people, but um there's an opportunity to craft it, I think everywhere, in every field and every function. Uh and that's that's exciting. And yeah, I don't know where it ends up. Like if going all the way back to your question, like there's a there's a world where this puts the kicker into productivity and Right, the effective, um, you know, output of every person, and we all live in, you know, Star Trek Nirvana. And then there's a world where the system shocks come so fast that our economic systems can't adjust, and you know, you, you throw 10 percent of the population out of whack, and like we spiral down into, you know, combine that with disinformation, and then you know, third party governments are trying to take us down, and the whole thing you know falls apart. And that's totally separate from the you know crazy renegade AI. That's just <laughs> the impact of putting. The intelligence of the planet in everyone's pocket awesome really uh really do appreciate your time anything you want to close out with um you know if you want to let everybody know where they can find your career course um or stakeholder oh. website anything else yeah no absolutely everything hangs off of my personal website so it's victorcho.com v-i-c-t-o-r cho.com and yeah you'll find uh, that that free course which literally is completely free there's no bait and switch so don't worry about it uh <laughs> that's my gift my gift to the world and the fourth stakeholder articles are are hanging off as two microsites from that site 